So if intention is important, then it must begin with knowing how to actually make decisions that reinforce our journey toward what we intend to do. And also embracing the fact that most of us don't make a widget for a living. We don't dig a ditch. We don't lay pipe. What we make is decisions. Hi, Michelle Florendo here, and welcome to Ask a Decision Engineer. Listen in and find out how to untangle big decisions with less stress and more clarity. In this fourth season of the podcast, I'm bringing folks on the show who have influenced my work on decision-making. And who better to start with than Seth Godin? Seth is an entrepreneur, an author of multiple New York Times bestselling books, writer of one of the most popular blogs in the world, and a dear teacher of mine when it comes to dancing with the emotions that come up in decision-making. Today, we talk about making decisions with intent, the difference between intent and purpose, why fear is not a bad thing, and how to dance with fear when making decisions. Heads up, I had some issues with my audio in this recording, but luckily, Seth sounds great. Enjoy the episode. I'm super excited to be able to welcome Seth Godin to the show. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure, my friend. It's good to see you. Oh, it is good to see you. And I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show because I don't know if you know this, this show would not exist without you for a number of different reasons. It was in that time when we were testing the Alt-MBA curriculum that I realized I actually had something to say about mm -hmm. decision-making. And then it was Robbie Metcalf who prompted me to do this in the first place when we met at Reference Makers. And then the podcasting workshop is the only reason I was able to launch it when I was eight months pregnant with my wow. daughter. Fantastic. So. And that was three years ago. Yeah, that was three yeah. years ago. So here we are. You know, I realize one of the things that I've always wanted to ask you, speaking of the Alt-MBA, is why is decision-making one of those first lessons in the first week? Are we going to do things with intent or not? And a whole bunch of humans have decided that intent doesn't really matter, that you should just use instinct or pretend authenticity, and that you should do what feels right and go with your emotions. And the problem with that is that's what gets you mobs and stampedes and short-term thinking and frustration when what you're hoping for doesn't happen. It also sets you up to be a pawn in the machine that is outthinking you because they're busy making decisions and manipulating you into just following along. So if intention is important, then it must begin with knowing how to actually make decisions that reinforce our journey toward what we intend to do. And also embracing the fact that most of us don't make a widget for a living. We don't dig a ditch. We don't lay pipe. What we make is decisions. Mm. I think this is really interesting, this distinction between intent and instinct. And I actually had someone ask for a question to be fielded to the people I'm talking to. And they wanted to know how much should we factor instinct into our decision-making? What are your thoughts on that? 
So the semantics here are really important. Like we're not going to talk about free will, but there's no such thing. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on instinct, but there's also no such thing. What instinct actually is, is non-mindful, short-term decision-making. And if you were transported by the Star Trek transporter beam to Romulan, you would make all these horrible, horrible decisions on instinct. So there's nothing about your instinct that is true or valid. It's just something you're used to doing. And because we don't do it mindfully, we give ourselves a pass. But what I have found is that the most thoughtful way to express our intent is to be able to defend our decisions. And that means don't make them on instinct, actually build a mindful narrative about why you did what you did. Mm. When, when thinking about what, what is this mindful narrative when it comes to decision-making, what do you think are some of the key parts of that process? They taught my kids in public school something called metacognition, which I thought was super useful, which is thinking about thinking. Mm-hmm. And thinking about decision-making is really useful. Like you cut that person off in traffic. Why did you do that? Let's talk it out. You are late for work almost every day. Why is that? Let's talk it through. What decisions did you make by instinct this morning that made it so that it was a day like every other one where you showed up at work frazzled and five minutes late when the cost of you showing up calm and two minutes earlier is close to zero? What were the decisions you made without thinking that you were making decisions. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean every decision we make is right. And Annie Duke knows this and explains this better than anybody. But decisions made on purpose almost always come out better than decisions made accidentally. Mm. So I wanted to to get into this purpose piece sometimes talking about one's purpose or what is your intent can feel like this big thing. And so where does one start when thinking about their intent, their purpose in making decisions? Okay. So I couldn't find a bigger gap between two words than purpose and intent. So let me try to tell you why I think these are different. Simon Sinek, my friend, has done really cool work with purpose, but it has been misunderstood and misused by corporations around the world. Mm. Purpose shouldn't be a clever excuse for justifying the thing you were going to do anyway. Your purpose is something emotional and fundamental that doesn't change week to week. Mm. Your intent is what change are you seeking to make through these actions? What difference are you trying to make? So if your intent is to turn a non-customer into a customer, then you should make a decision about how you're going to answer the phone. That has nothing to do with what you think of of your purpose on earth. And if you start doing what a car dealer might do if they bought Start With Why, which is, well, our purpose is to enable people to flourish by giving them modes of transportation that enable... No, your purpose is to make a profit going to work. That's all you're (laughs) here to do. Let's be clear about why you went to work today. Mm -hmm. Because if you didn't open your Chrysler dealership, people would still have cars. You went to work today to sell cars. Okay, so... If your intent in interacting with me is to make me a happy customer who's going to tell other people to shop with you, then why did you do the thing you did after we transacted? You made a decision. It didn't lead to the outcome you were seeking. So intent is all about what is that, like you said, what is the change that we want to be able to make? Correct. What does that state change? 
Okay. That doesn't if, you're not, if you're not making if you're not making a change, why did you bother showing up? Why did you bother spending the time and the money and interrupting other people? Obviously, you're here to make a change. We hesitate to say what it is because we're afraid of being on the hook. And again, if we make decisions for a living and we do, being on the hook is the best place to be. Hmm. Well, I, I want you to, to make that clear for the audience because the fear there, the fear of being on the hook is so real. And so if the intent is to make a change, how do we grapple with that fear of being on the hook? So, you know, if you go to a dermatologist and she says, I'm going to put some cream on, you say, why? And she says, because you have a rash and we're going to make it go away. Now, if the rash doesn't go away, you can be frustrated with the dermatologist, but the dermatologist did their best and maybe there's a different cream. But you can't be a doctor and say, oh, I'm just going to poke around in here and see what happens. <laughs> you have intent. And if you're not a professional, you get to do what people have a hobby do, which is I'm going to poke around in here and see what happens. But if you want to be a professional, what it means is that you have the privilege of being on the hook. I am here to do a thing. Let's judge how I did based on whether that thing happens or not. And so here, it seems like we're, we're getting to, to what you were saying at the beginning, which is decision-making is so important because it separates us just kind of like walking through life, being affected by the things around us and giving us a way to make change, to have agency. And if we're going to do that, we might as well have intent and be on the hook for the change that we really want to be able to see in the world. Correct. Correct. So one of the things that I have here is the, the Alt-MBA challenge coins. And one of the things on here is to seek out emotional labor. And there, there are some people out there who, yes, they are out to make change in the world and they work in a business or they work in many different places. And sometimes they say, you know, when it comes to making decisions, I need to be rational. I need to check my emotions at the door. And so what are your thoughts on that? And what would you say to those people? All right, so let's talk about emotional labor. Ariel yeah. Hochschild coined the term 60 years ago. She means something different than you and I mean. She mm -hmm. meant misogyny and the industrial system has led women to end up with jobs where they have to smile when they don't feel like it. Isn't that terrible? Mm -hmm. And I have shifted the meaning of it to, if you're not doing physical labor at work, you're not gonna get paid unless you do emotional labor at work. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you're just a stand in for a computer or an outsourced thing and we're gonna fire you. So what we get paid to do is stare down, dance with the fear, the imposter syndrome, the insecurity, that's our mm -hmm. job. So when you feel the fear, you should say, oh, I must be onto something, not I need to make it go away. The same way if you're running a marathon and you get tired, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. You can't <laughs> win a marathon unless you get tired along the way. So when people look at decision-making, yeah, you could do it with a calculator and just simply agree to do whatever the calculator tells you. However, if you're a living, breathing person, at some point, one of the things the calculator tells you is going to make you uncomfortable. Mm. Then what are you going to do? 
And when you feel that emotion, how will you dance with it? And in Annie Duke's great book on decision-making, she talks about Pete Carroll, the coach of uh, some football team and the Seahawks. (laughs) And on, on fourth down with two yards to go, he makes a good decision. Mm-hmm. And the quarterback throws an interception and they lose the game. That doesn't make it a bad decision. It was a good decision. All of the stats, all of the math, all of the predictive things would say that if you ran that play a hundred times, mm-hmm. what he chose to do was the right thing to do. But most NFL coaches wouldn't call the, the play he called for the very reason that he got in so much trouble because after it didn't work, the conservative-minded fans wanted him fired. Mm -hmm. And so when you look, stare at the decision, part of you is saying, do I want to carry the emotional labor forward? Because with intent, this is the best path. Mm -hmm. Or do I want to just say, "Eh, whatever, and do the thing that feels safer? And so it's it's a very tricky thing because most decisions are not as simple and as easy to judge as what play to call on fourth down. Right. I mean, we're, we're getting into interesting things because I am all about human decision-making. Like how do we make decisions as humans, not as robots? And as much as some people would like to think that decision-making is all about clairvoyance and calculating their way to the right answer. Like you said, if it were all about that, we could outsource it to the robots and then we would be out of the job. And so what's possible when, when we lean into dancing with that fear and staring, staring that emotional labor in the face? What's so the I think if we're on the frontier where we are doing what I call art, generous work for someone else that might not work, mm-hmm. it's impossible to outsource it because there's so much nuance to the decision. Mm-hmm. So When I started my career, I graduated from Stanford Business School and by almost every appropriate decision-making analysis, I should have gotten a job at McKinsey or Bain or BCG and made a ton of money. Because if your goal is return on investment, that was the fastest way to do it. And instead I took the lowest paying job of anybody who didn't work for a nonprofit in my graduating class. And then after I was done with that, I started my career in the industry that has the least upside, book publishing. And I ended up 40 years later, really pleased with all of my decisions. Because in that moment, I was exploring what would make me the most nervous, what would give me the most leverage for my ideas. Mm -hmm. And that exploration is what people say to me is that they want to do all day. They don't want, and including my business school classmates, they're like, well, you made a good decision. Well, what were they doing? Well, they were doing the thing that a robot could have picked to do. And if I had done this and it had failed even worse than it did, and it failed really badly the first couple of years, they might not have said I made a good decision, but they would be wrong. I made an excellent decision. Because based on the change I seek to make in the world, based on the story I want to tell myself, exploring that was the right thing to do. But plenty of other people with the same training as me didn't do that. So it's not like there's a right answer. 
-hmm. There's just many paths. Yeah. You know, one of the things that comes to mind when you talk about the story that we tell ourselves, one, wanted to make clear some of the things that you're, you're saying here for the audience, because you're also talking about the, the quality of decisions, right? And how the quality of a decision mm -hmm. is separate from the quality of the outcome. And you're just like repeating this for people in, in the back. Over and um, over and you over. can make good decisions and the quality of the outcome will be related to, yes, the decision and things outside your control. So I just wanted to name that. But this story that we tell ourselves, one of the things that comes to mind is sometimes when I'm coaching people around decisions and they, they want to be able to know what the outcome is, one of the things they talk about is, well, I fear regretting my decision. Mm -hmm. But that's a story, isn't yep. it? And so how, how do we dance with that, that fear of regret? Correct. Regret is a choice. There's no question that regret is a choice. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that people who are paralyzed by regret, filled with remorse or whatever about regret are weak or wrong. I'm just saying we can construct the conditions where it's easier for us to move forward. And so let's mm -hmm. pick an edge case. Mm -hmm. An edge case is a heart surgeon. When you sign up to be a heart surgeon, you are signing up to kill people. Not most of the people, but some people. Yeah. Somebody's going to die. Maybe more than one person is going to die. And at least one of the people who die is going to die because you made an error. Maybe it's an error you couldn't have known about. Maybe it's an error you did know about in advance. So if regret is a real problem, you shouldn't become a heart surgeon. And as a result, countless people will die because you didn't help them. Mm -hmm. And if we can decode our decision-making as what is the way I can contribute the best changes I can by making the best decisions I can with intent, part of the deal is you must also have a little box that you can put your regret in because you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Mm. If it's okay, I want to keep following this, this thread on fears that both I felt and, <laughs> and others do too. Okay, so we've talked about the, the fear of regret and kind of talked a little bit about the fear of bad outcomes. Uh, but another thing that comes up in this dancing with emotional labor being on the hook is the fear of what others may think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let me go back to regret for one more second because sure. it'll go into the next thing. Yeah. I started one of the first internet companies and we were working for AOL and Microsoft and CompuServe. And we got a call from News Corp, which owns Fox, and they were building an online network and we did a deal with them. And in those days, we had a lot of trouble making payroll because the internet hadn't really started to work yet. And the deal was, I think, $400,000 to build a project. And halfway through the project, they called me into their office and they say, we're shutting down the division we're authorized to give you $100,000 right now. And they owed me $400,000. And I looked at the guy and I said, well, I appreciate that, but you owe me $400,000. And he said, okay, you need to leave the office and here's our lawyer's business card. And we never got a penny. And that $100,000 was worth three weeks of payroll. And I had to go talk to my 35 people and say, mm -hmm. I had to make a decision on the spot. 
I decided we should get paid what we were owed. And now we're going to get nothing because it's going to cost us a million dollars to collect the 400,000. And I said, my decision might've been a good decision, but it was not a good outcome. And I'm sorry, it wasn't a good outcome. So when you look at that, part of me is saying, everything I have built might disappear. I might have to go through the personal problem of bankruptcy. But in addition, I let down 30 people who trusted me. And they're looking me in the eye and thinking that maybe I didn't do the right thing. And the only thing I can think of to do in a situation like that is to say, I'm driving a bus. If I'm afraid to drive the bus, everyone should get off the bus. But if I'm going to keep driving the bus, the rear view mirror isn't going to help me. I'm going to crash into something if I keep looking at the rear view mirror. I owe these people something. And what I owe them is a willingness to keep making what I think of as good decisions. Mm -hmm. And I will explain my thinking. I will be intentional about my thinking, but I will also guarantee that at least one more time, something really regretful will happen as a result of these decisions we make. And it did, right? And, you know, we almost lost the whole company three more times. And the last time was right when we sold it because the people who agreed to buy it backed out. So again, I had to go back to my team and say, remember, we got all excited about selling the company. We're not selling the company. And then two weeks later, a different person. I mean, so the whip sawing is going to happen. That's what you signed up for. It's the emotional labor. What I'm hearing is that decision-making this type of decision-making, intentional decision-making is as much a posture as it is in a mindset, as it is like any sort of process. Correct. And I am a huge fan of posture. Yes, mm -hmm. that's exactly right. Because yeah. we're playing a role. All of us are playing a role. You've heard me talk about this. Authenticity is a crock. I am not authentically present with you today or you with me. You are playing the role of Michelle and I am playing the role of Seth to the best of my ability because that's what you wanted me to do. You didn't want me to show up and talk the way I felt like it. You wanted me to play the role because that intent is what gets us where we're going. Mm -hmm. And you can have intimacy with your partner or with your family. But once you get out of that circle, most people are hoping for you to play the best version of yourself. Mm. You know, when you talk about roles, it makes me think of, when we think of a role, it's you know, how are we acting? What is the posture we are wearing for the sake of what? Right. Exactly right. And if your intent is generous, I don't know how to fault you for playing a role, right? That if you're an actor on Broadway and your intent is to make the audience feel riveted and glad they spent the 150 bucks, please conceal the fact that your foot really hurts because that's not why I came. I came for you to play this role. Thank you for your generous intent. And heart surgeons are the same thing, but the same thing is true for someone who's answering customer service calls because I know you answered the last 18 calls, but I wasn't there. I'm the 19th call. And what I need from you is for your intent to be true, which is you are here to help me feel good about the fact that I used your software. So being clear about the foresight of what the intent is 
Exactly. Yeah, I've I've brought up some of the the fears and things that I hear from people as they are making decisions, decisions to to be on the hook, to act, to do difficult things. What are some of the things you've seen people need to pay attention to when they're making decisions? The biggest one, and the reason I made a LinkedIn course about this one thing, Mm -hmm. is sunk costs. Sunk costs, people don't understand what they are. When you explain them, they still don't understand what they are. I'm getting better at explaining it. But once you understand it, mm-hmm. everything changes about your freedom to make things better. Mm. And I'm guessing you've already talked about this on the podcast, but it might be worth. I think it's worth saying it again, because sometimes listeners need to hear it in different ways from different people, which is part of the reason why you're here. Too. <laughs> so tell, tell the listeners, how is it that you talk about some costs? So this, I will first give you the conceptual version and then I'll tell you a story. The conceptual version is everything you own, including your reputation, your degrees, your house, everything you own is a gift from your former self. You don't have to take the gift. If you have a bridal shower and someone brings to the gift a dozen rotten eggs, you can say, no, thank you. Or you can throw them out, but you don't have to treasure a dozen rotten eggs simply because someone gave them to you. (laughs) And so if the you of 20 years ago went to law school and worked really, really hard and now shows up and say, here, here's a degree and here's all the responsibilities that go with being a lawyer, you're allowed to say, no, thank you. I appreciate you offering me the gift, but no, thank you. And the story is, I'll tell the abbreviated version, uh, a green iguana is a, a, a lizard that only eats fruits and vegetables. So it feels easier to take care of. And when you go to buy one, they cost less than 10 bucks and they're three inches long. They're super cute. And it is easy to buy a green iguana for your five-year-old son. And what you don't know is that within six months, it will be four feet long and it will weigh more than 50 pounds. And when you end up with an iguana like that, The right thing to do is find a place where the iguana should live happily, like Haiti or Florida or something, because that's where it's from and it doesn't belong in your bathroom. You have this thing that's a gift from you from five months ago, but you don't have to spend your life taking care of this iguana, making it unhappy and you unhappy. So once we understand what a sunk cost is, Now we can start to look at all of the decisions we make every single day about how we choose to use email, about what we do all day, about whether we go to the weekly meeting. Every scheduled weekly meeting is a sunk cost. It feels expensive to say, I don't want to go to that meeting anymore. Thanks for the gift. But you only have to pay that price once. And now you've freed up 50 hours in the next year. Back to you. Send me a memo instead. Thank you very much. I'm not going to the meeting. And my friend Toby, who's the CEO of a very big company who who knows how to code, wrote a piece of code that went into the company's servers and erased every single weekly meeting from every single calendar. And then he sent a note to everyone in the company and he said, you may have noticed all the weekly meetings are gone. If you really need a weekly meeting, you can reschedule it, but you have to wait two weeks to make sure you really need it. And he freed up tens of thousands of hours by ignoring sunk costs. It's so interesting how, how often 
how often we keep doing things because we feel like we have to. We don't want to admit that we don't want the gift. We don't want to admit that maybe that thing we did five years ago, maybe that iguana we adopted was a mistake, but we have learned mm-hmm. from this thing. If you're not prepared to learn from your mistakes, I'm not sure I want to work with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you said right there, I think is interesting in that sometimes we stay on these paths because we don't want to admit that our needs have changed. It doesn't serve us anymore. Or maybe, you know, like- Or, oh. or simply we got a different outcome. We made a good decision yeah. when we were graduating from college, but the outcome wasn't what we hoped for. We're not a Supreme Court justice. And that's what we were hoping for. Didn't happen. One of the things that I think is important to remember about decision-making too, is that we always have new opportunities to make decisions. Like, especially when you talk about sunk costs, maybe, Maybe at, at this point in time, I still like the iguana, we're still happy. But you know, after that first week, that first month, that three months, and then six months are okay, at some point in time, many points in time, we have new opportunities to make decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I would say to somebody who's a skeptic about X, Y, or Z is when you teach your kids, do you teach them to make new decisions based on new information? Right? When you're driving a car. And you come to the fact that the highway is closed for construction. Do you make a new decision based on new information? Or do you just sit there in your car for a year waiting (laughs) for them to finish the bridge? It's new information. Make a new decision. Yeah. Sometimes I talk about how anytime any of the three components of a decision changes, whether what you want, the objectives, the options, or the information you have changes, a new opportunity. Right. And not making a new decision is a decision. Yeah. The relinquishing of being on the hook is a decision. Correct. Even though we sometimes feel like it's an effective way of hiding. Exactly right. (laughs) All right. And so when it comes to these types of decisions, the decisions that we have to make every day, the decisions that are best made with intent. What is the one thing you wanna leave listeners with? We went a lot of different directions today. I would say the following. If you are insightful enough and wise enough to be listening to this podcast, you probably don't have a decision-making problem like most people do. And so the real opportunity is not for you to get even better at your dancing with decision-making, it's to teach the others. When we teach the others, our lives get better too. And I think it makes sense the next time, which should be today, that a decision presents itself. You call people together and say, let me tell you how I'm going to work my way through this decision with intent. That if every person listening to this taught only three other people what you have taught them, and we repeated that three more times, it would be a really significant impact on your organization and on your life. And so I think we need to get evangelical about this. And thank you to the people who have already signed up to listen. And now I'm giving you the obligation to go teach somebody else. Teach the others. I love it. Thank you, Seth, again, for everything for helping, helping me birth this podcast into the world, for being here today, for 
offering such great advice on, on why it's so important to make decisions with intent and how do we dance with the emotions that come up in the face of it. You've been such a gift for me and for so many out there. And so thank you. Well, thank you. You made my day. This was fun. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you heard something today that you found helpful, please share this episode or write a review. Also, if you're interested in more resources on how to make decisions with less stress and more clarity, like my quick start guide for untangling big decisions or the decision-making courses I teach, check out the show notes or go to askadecisionengineer.com to sign up for the mailing list. Be sure to check out the other episodes this season. Next week, I'll be chatting with Kathy Davies, the Managing Director of the Life Design Lab at Stanford, about the intersection of design thinking, life decisions, and community. Again, this is Michelle Florendo from Ask a Decision Engineer. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.